Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalina Hai. In this fifth season, I'll be exploring how we can change the ways in which we relate to and structure our existing systems so that we can build towards a more resilient future. From alternative economic models and business practices to our role in and perception of the more than human world, this season will explore how we might design ways of living that both enrich and sustain all forms of life, not just our own. For more information, you can find additional resources and links at natalinahigh.com forward slash the hive podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In today's show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Alex Edmonds, the Professor of Finance at London Business School. He has a PhD from MIT as a Fulbright Scholar and was previously a tenured professor at Wharton and an investment banker at Morgan Stanley. He has spoken at the World Economic Forum in Davos, testified in UK Parliament and given the TED Talk, What to Trust in a Post-Truth World, and the TEDx Talk, The Social Responsibility of Business, with a combined two million views. He serves as Mercer's School Memorial Professor of Business at Gresham College, giving a series of lectures to the public and on Royal London Asset Management's Responsible Investment Advisory Committee. His book, Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit, headed the Financial Times list of business books of the month for March 2020 and was featured in the FT's Summer Books of 2020. He has been named to Poets and Quants Best 40 Professors Under 40 and Thinkers 50 Radar. He's an exceptionally interesting guy to speak with, and this was a rich and fascinating conversation for me, so I hope you find it as inspiring as I did. Hi Alex, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I would love to start by asking you, from your perspective, What do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now? So I think one of the important things which is happening in human psyche is is the mistrust in business. So often people think that, well, what a business creates is at the expense of wider society. So they have what I call a pie-splitting mindset, which is that the only way that businesses make profits is by extracting from everybody else. For example, by price gouging customers, by mistreating workers, by polluting the environment. And so one concern is that people think that we need to heavily regulate business in order to ensure that they serve wider society. And so do you think that there's a greater sense that legislation is the way forward? You speak about regulating business. Is this something that people are getting more open to or interested in? Because I know that from, for instance, the perspective of privacy and data with my work in technology in Europe, we're a lot more comfortable with regulating through, for example, the GDPR than our American counterparts. Are you seeing a greater sense of urgency and people wanting businesses to be legislated so that they can take a bit of a broad angle that maybe encompasses not just profit, but also other considerations. 
Yes, yes, I am. But I don't think this is necessarily good. So, so what people argue is they want to have um, as radical a solution as possible. And so any law seems to be the most radical solution. So if politicians really cared, then they would want to pass a law on something. But I think we should be extremely careful before passing any law. So first we need to ask, well, what is the problem to which the law is a solution? So sometimes people will look at a couple of bad companies like BHS and Sports Direct and think, well, because of these couple of examples, we need to pass a law to regulate all businesses. But that's not correct because when you have loads of companies, there will be a couple which will fail. And maybe there's a lot of other companies which are creating value for society and who want to make sure that regulation doesn't punish companies that are healthy otherwise. And also we need to recognise, well, what's the limits of regulation? Is that regulation can only lead to a compliance, but not commitment. So what we would like to do is we'd like to have companies that do serve wider society. However, you can't regulate that, right? You can cut past a regulation forcing a high minimum wage, but that doesn't force you to treat your work as well, to provide meaningful work, to provide skills development and so forth, right? So what my approach is, is rather than having the regulatory approach, is to say, well, it's your, in your interest as a business leader to run your business in a responsible and sustainable way that ultimately will make your company more successful. And I think that is a much more positive message and a much more powerful message than trying to regulate it. Yeah, that's a fascinating way of looking at it. And I think one of the things that it kind of points towards is the motivations that we have for doing things. So you could say, okay, well, there's an extrinsic reason, like promotion or whatever it might be, why I should want to comply with X, Y, and Z. But if we're not also intrinsically motivated, how much change is really going to happen? I think that's a really important point because it's the difference between compliance and commitment, right? If we indeed have the regulation approach, it becomes a compliance exercise. Let's do the minimum possible to comply with the law. And if instead, right, we say, well, this is, it's in your interest to do that, well, then people will be truly committed. So the government does not mandate that everybody eats five portions of fruit and vegetables a day. Instead, well, they say, well, here is the advice. This is stuff which is um, good for you. And there's other advice and other things such as exercise and so forth. And so what this means is that people are going to try and think about their health more generally, rather than just eating the number of fruit and vegetables in order to tick off this, this, um, this requirement. So I want to explain explore a bit more about your fantastic book titled Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. And I'd like to start by asking what led you to write the book, especially now, and how has it been received? Well, thanks very much, Natalie. So what led me to write it, uh, it was about two and a half years ago, was the view that purpose and profit were in conflict. So on the one hand, you had some very narrow-minded executives who thought the best way to make money is to exploit everybody else, right? So let's mistreat our workers, let's price gouge our customers, let's pollute the environment. And this was based on the idea that there is a fixed pie. So the only way to increase the pie for profit is to take from everybody else. And what I wanted to show was actually the fact um, purpose is, is critical for a business. It's not at the expense of profit, but it supports profit. And this is not just based on wishful thinking. It's based a lot on rigorous evidence. So a lot of my own work shows that personal companies are more profitable in the long term. So purpose is not just fluffy or worthy. It's commercially important. But then the other, on the other side, I also wanted to write it for the citizens that we talked about in the answer to the first question, is there's many people who are quite rightly 
concerned about business and actually thinks that purpose needs to serve wider society. However, their view is that the way to achieve this is to heavily regulate business. Again, that's based on the fixed pie mentality that the only way to increase the slice to society is to take away from the slice given to profit. But if in fact, like businesses can grow the pie, that profit need not be at the expense of everybody else, but as a byproduct of creating value for everybody else, then indeed we want to ensure that businesses are innovative and productive. And if they do that, then they can not only serve society, but also serve shareholders by doing so. I'm curious, in terms of the work that you've done and that you write about in your book, how do you go about defining purpose? Because a lot of people like to use this word and they band it around and it's something which has become not only very popular, but also maybe now lacking in substance. So I'm curious how you speak to that. Yeah, thank you. That's a really important question because the word purpose is indeed like really banded around where with people not actually defining it. And often people think about the word purposeful as being a synonym for altruistic. So a purposeful business is one that cares about society. But if we think about it, like the word purposeful means focused and targeted. So a purposeful meeting is one with a clear agenda. And if I do something on purpose... I do it deliberately. So I define purpose as why a company exists. It's who it serves, its reason for being, and the role that it plays in the world. So that might sound a bit lofty, but what that says is that's the specific way in which the company is going to contribute to society. And that has to be a targeted and focused answer. So if a person was to answer, what is their purpose? She wouldn't say, it's to be a doctor and a lawyer and a teacher and entrepreneur. She might say one of those things. And while we sort of laugh about it, and we know that a person should have sort of one focused purpose, often we think that for companies, they need to serve all of the problems in the world. So climate change, diversity, automation, income inequality, skills development, when in fact that's unrealistic. And in fact, if we have an unrealistic notion of purpose, then companies are never going to put it into practice. But then if we were to say, well, actually, if you are a train company, don't say sort of nice sounding statements about all of these things and give to charity. Instead, make sure that your trains run on time. Because if you do that, that has a huge effect on society because it connects people with their jobs. It can be, connects people with their family and friends. So make sure that you do your, serve your purpose in an excellent way rather than trying to be all things to all people. In terms of the way you structured your book, you write about three key principles. And I'm wondering if you can give us a little summary or description of what those are. Yeah, so why do I need principles to begin with? So what have finance professors like me have taught for the last 50 years is that when companies make decisions, they should calculate the profit impact of those decisions. So that's known as net present value analysis. You do a calculation. However, if we indeed want to run business with purpose rather than profit being the end goal, right, we need to have a different way of making decisions. So we can't just have no decision rules at all because then it's a free for all. It's completely subjective. So what I wanted to do was to come up with principles that a company can think about when deciding where to allocate its resources or whether to take a decision or turn it down. And so the first is the principle of multiplication. And so that is the idea that if you were to invest in society, you need to generate a greater return than how much you, you put in. So that might seem obvious why right? you want to generate high returns, but actually many things that companies do don't actually satisfy that. So if you think about donating to charity, 
if a company donates to charity, it puts in $1. It, uh, that, that $1 is worth $1 to the charity receiving it. So it doesn't multiply the dollar that it gives. But if instead it invests that $1 in terms of training its workers better, right, that does create more than $1 of benefit. The second thing is comparative advantage, which is, yes, there's loads of problems in the world, but as a company, let's focus on the problems that we have a unique position to solve, given our expertise. So one example here is is Coca-Cola, right? So they have a um, project called Last Mile, which makes sure that um, vaccines are available everywhere in Africa, including the difficult last mile to a rural school or hospital, which is why it's called Project Last Mile. So why do they do that? Well, it's because their expertise is in logistics, because they need to make sure that Coke is available everywhere, including the last mile to a school or hospital in, 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 in Africa. So given they have the expertise in transportation and logistics, they use that to uh, make sure that vaccines can be delivered. And the third one is materiality. So what we mean by this is that, well, there's different elements of society that we want to serve. There's suppliers, there's communities, there's customers, there's the environment. But let's focus on the most material stakeholders, which are the ones that are most important for our business. For example, if you're a mining company, the environment is really important, right? Because you have a huge impact on it. But maybe if you're a bank, Right, maybe at least your direct effect on the environment is not that high. So maybe even more important for you is to make sure that you are selling your products to customers fairly. You're not having fake bank account scandals like Wells Fargo. You're not having algorithms that are, um, which are discriminatory against certain ethnic backgrounds and so forth. So this means, yes, there's loads of problems that you'd like to solve, but let's focus on the most material issues. And this is really important because it means, again, that as a purposeful company, you don't want to be all things to all people, but you want to focus on the areas that you can really move the needle the most. That's fascinating. And I think I think there there's also an interesting way of approaching things that we can maybe apply to our own individual choices and lives. Is that something you considered in terms of the way in which you lay out these things in your book? So having three particular areas in which businesses can be more purposeful Do you see a way in which that can map out onto individual choices or onto your life in particular? Absolutely. I'm really glad that you asked me about that, Natalie, because that's something I'm really passionate about is it's not just purposeful companies, but purposeful living as an individual person. So in the final chapter of my book, I apply all the principles of purposeful business to purposeful citizenship. And this is something that I've, I've actually been teaching to my um, MBA students for the last 10 years. So you might think, well, why do I do this? Because I'm a professor of finance. But I realise that what my students care much more about is not learning how to calculate the weighted average cost of capital, but how to ensure they live purposeful and meaningful and fulfilling lives. And one of my favourite books of all time is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And um, one habit, which is habit three, is about time management, which is, um, he calls it first things first, making sure that we prioritise the important, not the urgent, make sure that we focus on a couple of things. But actually what comes before habit three is his habit two, which is begin with the end in mind. And that's about purpose, because before we can think about time management, 
we need to think about our objectives in life because time management is relevant, is related to, well, what objective do you want to achieve? And so having an idea of your purpose in life, make sure that you are not burnt out because you realise, well, what are the things that you're particularly passionate about? So to give you an example for my own purpose, I've defined it as to use rigorous research to influence the practice of business. So what that means is that while I'm a professor, I really am passionate about anything which involves practitioners and the real world, which is why I, I love doing things like this podcast, where I didn't calculate, am I making money from this? I'm, I'm, I'm clearly, I'm just doing this for free, but it's something that I, I, I really love doing because it's part of the purpose. But in order to do things like this podcast, I have to turn down a lot of invitations to give seminars at academic conferences. So it might be at a prestigious university and so on. But because my purpose doesn't involve that, it involves research for the practice of business, that means that I can turn down a lot of those academic invitations, not get burnt out, and focus on what is really the sweet spot for me, which is the practitioner academic interface. Mm, that's so beautifully put as well. I wonder with this, because it's it's a conversation that comes up increasingly, actually, with friends and colleagues. And one of the things that I find particularly interesting is this question of, well, first of all, how does one move towards understanding what one's purpose is? Is it something that everybody can access? Is there a specific thing that we all have within us that we feel move towards? Um, it's definitely more of a philosophical question, I think, but I think it's one of the big ones. And the other is this question around kind of playing back to what you were saying earlier, profit and purpose, which is, can you do what you love in some way or other that includes making money from it? And I think it's clear that with the way that you're approaching your life, these things are compatible. And there's a beautiful synthesis between what you can do as a professor and as a practitioner and to embolden other people to do the same that allows you to make money from those endeavours. Do you think it's something that's accessible to everyone or do we have to be maybe more adaptable in terms of finding a way forward in our personal lives with this desire to accomplish purpose? Yeah, I think it's absolutely possible. So, so how do I think it is possible? Well, let's think about how somebody can find their, their, their purpose. So I have three questions that I mentioned in, in the end of the book, but let me just go through one. And so that one question is, where do you see yourself in 10 years time? Now, people think, well, that's not that interesting a question, right? They might think, I, I know the answer to this question. It's, I want to be the managing director of an investment bank or I want to be vice president of marketing at a company. But when I ask you, where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? I'm not asking you this in terms of your, your job title. I'm asking you this in terms of what will your days be like? What will wake you up in the morning? What will make you tick? Because your career, if it's to be truly fulfilling is about what you do, it's about who you are, it's not about your job title. So that sounds a bit abstract, so let me make this concrete. So let's say there's people who want to go into investment banking, which is a, a career which is lucrative, but many people will argue that it's not purposeful, you're just um, making loads of money for yourself. But I wouldn't agree with this, because if you're an investment banker, who you are is you're a trusted advisor. So some companies come to you with their biggest problems, asking you, well, I'm in trouble. Do I need to raise equity? Do I issue debt? Do I sell a division? Do I put myself up for sale? And you are the person who is trusted to give them the advice that is best for them, even if it doesn't give you the highest fee. Now, I think you should only go into that, that career 
as a trusted advisor if you're somebody who loves to be an advisor as a person. So maybe if you're at university and you're in a study group, there might be tough conversations that you have to have with your teammates. You might have to say, well, I don't think you're putting your weight on these group projects or you're coming to these meetings and you're, you're, you're physically present, but you're mentally absent, you're, already, you're always on your phone or something. Now, there's some people who, who love having those conversations because they're in their element when they're honest. And there's other people who would find those conversations really awkward. And I would say if you're in the latter category, don't go into investment banking. It doesn't matter how much money you make, right? Because if who you are is not truly a trusted advisor, right, that's not something that you should be doing irrespective of rewards that you're getting. So, so why did I, I become a, a, a professor at um, university? Um, I was at Merton College, Oxford, and their rowing is, is, is a huge thing. But the first term, the Michaelmas term, the rowing competition there, you can only do if you're a beginner. So after I'd done that for one year, the second year, I couldn't participate unless I became a cox, which is sort of the in-boat coach who sort of steers and motivates. And the very first time that I was coxing the boat, I, I loved the idea of motivating and teaching people. Is that I would say, uh, make sure that you don't drop your outside shoulder. I would see the immediate feedback from people taking that into account. And that's what made me realise I enjoyed teaching. So why, why I went to, into academia is not because of the huge riches that you get as a professor, because there are none, but instead the fact that I love the idea of, 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 of teaching and that if I explain a difficult concept to a student and they get it, and I can see this from their facial expression, that is hugely fulfilling. And that's linked to sort of the second point that I'll, I'll make in terms of answering this question is that on the one hand, you can introspect your purpose a little bit, by thinking, where do I see myself in 10 years' time? But I also say part of it is, is just trying and failing. So you can't just think about your purpose purely through introspection. You have to get out and try different things. So had I not thought about, let me try and cox this boat rather than rowing, I might have never had this experience of teaching something and I might be doing something quite different today. So first, sort of think about what you might like to do and then get yourself out there and do it. And, and if indeed you try something and you take a job or you try an activity and it fails, that is fantastic. Right? If, you do, if you fail at something, that really tells you a lot. That tells you, well, maybe that's not for you. And that's hugely informative. But often now we think we don't want to try anything that fails. But actually failing is, is hugely informative because that will lead you to, to know what, what, what not to do and, and point you to the things that you might succeed at. It's fascinating, our relationship to failure, especially if we consider the ways in which different countries this year have responded to the spread of the virus and trying to find different things to see if there's any impact on numbers of cases or deaths being reported. There's those governments that seem to be more comfortable learning from failures and changing tack, and then those that just stubbornly refuse to do you know, any kind of self-reflection or admit any sort of failure. Is there something we can do to make us more comfortable with recognising that failure is actually a useful thing to reflect upon, that it can actually be an informative thing. Yeah, so, so first is, is the effect that we have on ourselves and the second is the effect that we have on, our, on other people. I think the effect that we have on ourselves, I, I wish I had a silver bullet which was more um, deep than me saying just get comfortable with failure. But I, I think it is as simple as getting comfortable with failure because we often see failure as, as, as something bad when it's actually a sign of progress. So Thomas Edison famously said, I have not failed. I have found 10,000 ways that won't work. 
and certainly for me, like one of the first activities I ever did uh, was was playing chess. It's not a particularly um, cool activity to do, but I, I used to be part of the England international chess team. And so when um, I started playing, when I lost a game, I, I said when I was five, I burst into tears. Why? Because I was a young child. And then I, I, I cry when I lost. But then the more the, when the years pass, I just realised that actually losing is, is, is part of life, right? It's part of chess. There's nothing particularly bad about losing. It just happens. And so that means that when I decide to try other things like sport, let's say rowing or coxing, yeah, there's some things that I will fail at, but that's just part of general um, progress. I remember when I, when I first started skiing, I thought that the goal of skiing was to fall fewer times on Tuesday than I did on Monday, right? Because failing, falling fewer times is progress. But the way that you fall fewer times is you go on the easier slopes or you turn a lot, so rather than to slow yourself down, when actually, well, if you're not falling enough, you're probably being too conservative and, and, and you're not actually going for it. And then we then apply that to what we can do in terms of other people is we've got into a society where we play a game of gotcha. Like we like to, particularly in the media or social media, lambast a company that failed or a politician who does a U-turn and so on. But actually, this is the process of learning, right? So sometimes it might be that the government says something and then responds to the science and then um, changes its mind. So there are many people nowadays who say, ah, well, the government, I don't believe that we should wear masks because the government initially didn't say masks were important. Well, the government, I'm not going to defend everything they've did, but there the government initially said we're not sure that masks matter, but then they changed the policy based on the evidence showing that they do make a difference and we should allow people to make these changes in, in the form of evidence. And similarly with companies, right, companies set certain targets for, let's say, gender diversity or they set targets for youth employment or for carbon emissions. And if a company fails at any target, right, people will say, oh, this was a CEO just saying stuff and not putting it into practice. But you should fail with some of your targets. If you're not failing on any uh, on targets, you are setting your goals too easy. Like we want companies to be ambitious, we want people to be ambitious, and so this is why I do think failure is an important part of life and we need to be comfortable with it uh, rather than trying to minimize failure because the way of minimizing failure is just not to do anything innovative, to stick to the status quo. I think it was JK Rowling who said in her um Harvard graduation speech, it's impossible to live life without failing at something unless you've lived life so cautiously that you may as well have not lived at all, in which case you fail by default. Yeah, so true. I wonder why there is such a reluctance to fail. I mean, obviously, within the territory of social media, it's very easy for people to hide behind screens and point the finger. And it's easier to bring other people down than to admit one's own shortcomings. So I understand that aspect. But do you think that there's something else about the zeitgeist of our times that means that we're much more reluctant to engage with failure? Yeah, so part of this might be um, mindset. So you or some of my listeners might know this book by Carol Dweck called Mindset, and it talks about the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. So what the fixed mindset says is that, well, you're born with certain genes and genetic talents, and you either have something or you don't. You're either a great public speaker or you're not. You're either funny or you're not, and so on. And the second is the growth mindset, which suggests that you can actually change things over time through your efforts. So you don't have certain talents, you need to work really hard at that. And from just from when we are kids, what we don't like people who achieve success through effort, 
right? They're seen as tryhards or SWATs. We like to say people are natural. And why is this? I, I, this might seem strange, but I do think it's part of like children's storytelling, right? We have certain superheroes who are bitten by a spider, like Spider-Man, and they are just different people due to having some superpower. And as a kid, right, you like to say, I didn't even try, but I aced the exam. And so people often lie about how much work they put, put into something. They want to be seen as these superpowers who don't need to try. And indeed, if somebody sort of strikes out in baseball, they will just say, I wasn't even trying. Or if, if you um, try to run a 10K in, let's say, an hour, you fail, you'll say, oh, I, I didn't train for this. Oh, that's why I didn't make it. Well, actually, I think you should have the approach. If you didn't train for it, shame on you. You entered a 10K and you didn't train for it. This is something to be embarrassed about, not to be something proud about that you managed to do it on no, no training. So I do think part of it is, is just we, for some reason, we have this aversion to effort because we think that effort means that you weren't born with the great genetics, you weren't born with the superpower. But in fact, what the research shows by people like Harold Dweck is that most talents that we have now are things that you work on and um, we should praise people for, for, for effort rather than calling them swaps or tryhards and people, others, to, to call them naturals. These things aren't natural. These things are things which are products of, of effort. So we recognise that we need effort in order to get to some certain outcomes Then I think this will really change our mentality towards a lot of these issues. I really like that. We definitely tend to assume that some people are just more talented than others. And while I do think that we have different kinds of capacities that may come more easily than others, if you don't put the effort in, for instance, if you never pick up that violin and you're potentially an amazing violinist, you know, it's never going to happen for you. You'll never find out what you can achieve. Yeah, and, and there might be things that you, you pick up which you, you, you really fail at. So, so when I moved to America for my PhD, well, I, I, I'm all, I've been always into sports and so I would try to play the American sports. So something like... Um, Baseball, softball, I, I took too naturally because I played tennis and squash and I've got quite good hand-eye coordination. I started basketball. I was absolutely useless, right? I've got nothing which is transferable because, like, hand-eye coordination in, in terms of hitting something is not there. I'm really good at straight-line speed, but in basketball, you're, you're, you're not running in a, in a straight line. And, and so, well, I, I, I was really bad. And so after trying hard for, for three months, I thought, okay, this is not for me. And, okay, maybe I had an awkward three months in the basketball court, but had I not tried that and the other sports, I wouldn't have found a few things like softball or baseball that, that I, was, I, was, I was good at. So I want to weave back into the business side of things. And one of the themes that you speak to is how we can engage in responsible investments to build back better after a crisis. I'm curious what you mean by responsible investment and how it differs from alternative, perhaps what we conceive of as you know, traditional ideas of investment. Yeah, thank you. So, so what is responsible investment to begin with? So this is the idea that, well, we would like to invest in companies that not only um, create a profit, but also serve wider society. And traditional investment is the idea, well, let's highlight just invest in companies that only make profits in the long term. So often these two things have been seen as quite different. So responsible investment is sort of an advance on traditional investment. But actually what my research suggests is these things are not actually that different from each other, right? Because if my research shows that responsible companies that serve wider society are actually more profitable in the long term, then that's plain and simple good investing, right? We want to invest in companies that do well in the long term, 
what we're doing as a responsible investor is how are we measuring the profit potential of a company? In the past, they might have measured the size of its bank account and balance sheet and the size of its factories. Now, as a responsible investor, you're going to measure the strength of its corporate culture, the strength of its customer loyalty, all these intangible factors. But the fact that they're intangible means doesn't mean that they're any less important for the company's success. These are still material factors that are going to lead to a company being profitable. So rather than seeing it as a completely different type of investing, so some people might see it as tree-huggy, open-toe sandal investing, it's absolutely not. But we are still wanting to find effective, profitable, successful companies, but we're widening the set of information that we're going to use to try to figure out which companies are profitable. We're not just looking at financial numbers, but we're looking at these other non-financial dimensions. And so some of you will, will know the United Nations has this principles of responsible investment, which says that a responsible investor should take into account environmental, social and governance criteria. But I think they should be called the principles of investment, Right? So there's no responsible about it. Right? Any sensible investor should take into account, well, is the company uh, one with a, a strong workforce? Is it one that's loved by its customers? Uh, and hopefully, actually, in, in maybe five years' time, we would forget about the word responsible investment, right? Because it becomes so mainstream that there's no need for a term, right? There's no such thing as financially profitable investment, right? It's taken for granted that investment should be financially profitable, and maybe in five years' time, we wouldn't need the word responsible because it's taken for granted that actually any investor should find businesses that are responsible because if they're not, those businesses will fail in the long term. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think there does seem to be so much more awareness in and kind of conversations around ESG and the desire for a different approach, especially when you look at younger cohorts. I was talking about this with a financial advisor friend of mine who's based in London, and he was saying that a lot of their younger clients are coming in and asking, you know, we want to be able to invest in ethical companies across certain parameters. What do you have for me? So whether that's a portfolio that's divested from fossil fuels or something that's not trading in vice products or supporting certain numbers of sustainable initiatives, whatever it might be, it does seem to be more of a hunger for this among younger people in particular and possibly also increasingly in older folk as well. But you also said that when they started making a move towards creating portfolios for people that did comprise a selection of ethical investments, a lot of older clients also showed a greater willingness and desire to engage in it too. So do you think there's something there around people being more aware about what it means to be responsible and how their actions, whether through investment or in other ways, have an impact? Yeah, so I think it's a couple of things. So I think, firstly, one of the trends is, is the fact that people recognise the importance of serving wider society. And yes, one might argue that this is something which the millennial generation is particularly um, attentive to, or woke to, if you wanted to use a more modern phrase. And, and sort of, I, I do think this is, this is there, because when I look at my students, I've been a professor for 13 years. When I started out, the main career that people wanted to go into was private equity. But now, genuinely, many people want to go into things which are creating so social good, so responsible investing, or responsible business, not just something which is financially motivated. But I think the second trend towards this is the recognition that actually responsibility is just good business. 
And so that might be why maybe the, the, the different generation is this um, gen, uh, the baby boomer generation or, or, or Gen X and so on. Right? They might still care about responsibility because they recognise that it's financially material. So why we care about how a company serves society is not just about being worthy. It's about wanting to make sure that the business is profitable in the long term and sustainable. So that's why I think responsibility is something that can um, appeal to all different generations. And that's, again, why I think the importance of my work is to try to show that these things are not just good for society, but good for business. And so this means even if you are a hard-headed businessman or businesswoman, you should still take responsibility into account. Otherwise, in the absence of this, it will be a us versus them situation. And so this is why, again, I don't like the regulatory approach because those who believe in heavy government who tend to be more on the left might support it. Those who are on the right might be a bit more sceptical and if there's regulation, they might try to bypass it and there's just going to be this endless battle between people of different political persuasions. But I think a way of running business to serve both investors and society is something that could unite the different elements of society which are increasingly fractured by a lot of these divisions. So in terms of the ways in which different kinds of organisations and businesses can be responsible and take responsibility, obviously you have big players like Unilever and others who can take a stand in terms of removing ads on Facebook or other channels if they don't have practices that they can ethically stand by, for instance, deciding no longer to support fossil fuel companies or whatever it might be. But in terms of the smaller businesses, whether you're a consultant, freelancer, or a startup, or a mom and pop store kind of thing, are there certain questions that are useful for people listening to this show that they could be asking themselves to help orient towards becoming more responsible as businesses or through their business? Absolutely. I'm really glad that you asked this because often people think, well, we can only think about responsibility if we're a big business with loads of profit. So if you're a small company, you just really don't have the money in order to think about this. But one thing I'd like to stress is that responsibility is often not costly financially. And instead, it's just about a shift in mindset about how can we serve wider society. So I think the one question that any small business leader should ask herself is what is in my hand? So what I mean by this is to ask yourself, well, what are the resources that my company has and how can I use them to serve wider society? So let me give you an example from a small business that I'm a customer of. It's called Barry's Bootcamp, which is a brutal gym in London. I'm actually heading there right after we finish um, this recording. So David Beckham and so forth are, are clients there. So it's a small business and they had to close down during the pandemic for four months between March and July, gyms weren't allowed to open. But well, they asked, well, what is in the hand? It was the ability to run fitness sessions. And so they continued to offer these fitness classes online to, um, to, to people for free through, through Instagram. And this has a huge effect on people's well-being because they were self-isolating at home without the ability to go to gyms and also mental wellness is something which is affected by physical fitness. So that didn't cost them anything. There was no financial expertise and financial investment required, but it was something which served society. And the nice coda was that ultimately they were able to benefit from that because then they were able to launch their own online offering, which they are able to monetize. Perhaps they were able to launch this because they'd offered the free classes and they realized, well, what worked and what didn't work and how they needed to adapt their classes to an online format. And so now they're able to offer 
these sort of paid classes, they are still keeping the free online offering as well, but that was a way that I genuinely believe that they introduced it to begin with to try to serve society rather than like as a beta test for something they would later monetize. But after realizing actually there's a lot of demand for this, then they were able to end up monetizing that. So even though gyms are now open, there might be people who don't live in London or Manchester and can't get to Barry's boot camp but can still benefit from the workout. <laughs> That's an interesting one. I had a similar experience with my Pilates instructors. They run a boutique Pilates studio here in Barcelona and started running online courses. And what was amazing is that, you know, with everyone being trapped in our different places and homes, they were able to reconnect with people they'd had as clients throughout the years that were no longer physically based in Barcelona, but who were then, you know, open to having these classes with them virtually. So it kind of expanded what was previously quite a small selection of clients and created a business which then has a lot more resilience in the face of other physical disruptions. So I think there's also some interesting learnings there as well about being able to change the way that you do business in a way that then allows you to be reflexive and pursue other forms of income. There's also that profitability of doing things which people value. I don't know if you could speak to that in terms of what are some of the things that you see businesses doing that are maybe more values driven? For instance, being generous in the boot camp, offering people free classes, um, and then that gives you know, customers a sense of the values the business upholds. Is there something that you're seeing there about ways in which customers are responding more strongly to values that brands put forward? Yeah, so I think here, this, this is really interesting because it circles back to the question about failure that we mentioned earlier and about how we need to be people who, who, who tolerate failure because a, a way of a company um, avoiding failure is to not try anything innovative in the pandemic. And if you try something innovative such as launching an online offering, it might fail to begin with. So there were some individual Bowie's instructors which were offering some of their own online classes and sometimes just the tech didn't work, right? because their their expertise is is fitness training. It's not to be tech wizards. And so sometimes the the tech failed, but then the customers there would say, oh, don't worry about it. Okay, well, okay, maybe we paid for this session, but it didn't work out. Let's let's try again. Or, um, and and if if you as a customer respond to this by saying, oh, I'm going to get really angry and demand my three pounds back because this this session didn't have great audio, then that's going to deter people from ever having that innovation to begin with. So I do think customers have a role to play. So I know that you asked me more about what does it say about uh, the, the company's values, but I think it says things about the customer's values as well, because it's only if you believe that you have the customer trust that the customers will stick with you, even if you fail the first couple of times you try something, that actually the company's going to be innovative to begin with. So we often think, well, it's the companies that serve the customers, and it, and it is, but I like to highlight the importance of these relationships being, being two-way, is that you need to have customers who who are willing to allow you to fail. And if you fail, the customers won't just walk away, but they might give you feedback about that. And and then that's something which is going to lead to a lot of innovation. There's a broader point behind this, because we often think about ourselves as individuals as being powerless, right? Corporations now are bigger than ever before. So how can I as one person affect a corporation? Well, you in fact do have um, a say in these things because companies are genuinely trying to get um, customer feedback. And if things don't work and you can give feedback about it, then these are things where people do take them really seriously. I'm one of thousands of clients at Barry's Bootcamp. When I see trainers who are new and really good, I write to the management team saying what's really good about them. And they're always writing me back and really genuinely appreciating 
getting the feedback. So I think customers aren't just people who have things done to them by a company. They can actually influence what a company is offering. And in particular, when we're having this flexibility and the malleability and the pliability of a pandemic, I think that's the time where I think customer feedback and customer suggestions are even more powerful than if business were as usual. And then companies would think, well, there's no need to do anything different from what we've been doing in the past. It also makes me think of an interesting dynamic that plays out that's well documented in psychological research. And it relates to what you're saying about an instructor perhaps not having full grasp at the outset of how to run a Zoom fitness training session or whatever it might be. And it's a phenomenon known as the pratfall effect. It's about what happens when we see other people make a mistake or, you know, maybe embarrass themselves. And rather than thinking less of them, as we might believe, actually seeing someone make a mistake makes them more human, you know, including all the errors. It actually endears them to us and makes them feel more maybe accessible and relatable. And so there's this quality of humanization that can happen when a brand makes a mistake or fails in some way and owns up to it that weaves us more relationally into that story. It can actually create a stronger sense of connection. So I think it's a really interesting element there as well about the dance between the customer and the brand making up maybe a richer ecosystem, if you like. It's not this static thing that maybe we're led to believe it is. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think it's just human to, to make mistakes. And then if you make a mistake and you're somebody in authority or a company, just to, to admit that you made a mistake. So sometimes people will try to excuse the mistake and mean, oh, I already, I intended that. But then that's just not not human. So there, there are times, actually, one of the other things I, I teach is I teach some boot camps myself. And um, during the pandemic, the London Business School students uh, had me um, teach some workouts through Instagram, which, which I love doing. And I've got a coaching background. But that there was a, there was a time where I, I, I just forgot one element of the routine and I said oh I made a mistake here I skipped an exercise I'm sorry I I could have sort of pretended I hadn't but I think it's just more honest to say if you made made a mistake and and that sort of makes people more comfortable than themselves if they know that okay even the instructor's human yeah exactly it gives people permission to just be more fully themselves and to take those risks as you mentioned earlier when you're talking about our tolerance for failure from personal experiences, I think you know most of us will know how challenging it can be sometimes to live according to our values, even or maybe perhaps especially when we've made an explicit commitment to, to live by them. So what do you think might need to be in place to support businesses and their founders to both commit to and then adhere to their expressed values? Yeah, so I think uh, they need um, buy-in from their investors and their customers. So in particular, long-term buy-in, because there was a concern with with a particularly large businesses, which are publicly traded, which have to report their earnings maybe every quarter, that investors are just focused on the next quarter's earnings. And if so, well, you're not going to be looking up past the next quarter and thinking about things such as a transition plan if you're an energy company or how to ensure diversity of thinking and psychological safety if you're thinking about your your workforce. So I think what you require is investors to really understand, well, the value of your company is far more than just your short-term earnings, that you're going to be working on these other things and to make sure that um, the investors will evaluate you according to those uh, dimensions rather than just profits. And also sometimes you might require this from, from, from customers because it may well be that a company is having to change its offering um, and during the pandemic and maybe it won't get things right immediately but if the customers will know that um, they're trying to experiment and that if they're, they're open to feedback if things don't work out then this is something which uh, I think will, will help so the whole idea here I, I call like mutuality is the fact that companies have two-way relationships with their employees and their customers 
and um, their investors. And this is something that I myself will face in, in a few weeks' time. So I'm going to start um, teaching my London Business School lectures. This is going to be a hybrid format where half the students will be in the room, half of them will be in Zoom. That's going to be something I've never taught before, and I might not immediately be good at that. And so hopefully the students, if I do something which is ineffective, yeah, it's one thing, it's very cathartic to complain on a WhatsApp group on how bad the instructor is, but instead of they say to me, well, Alex, this, this was not working, or here you are paying more attention to the people in the room, then on Zoom, then I'd like them to to, to, to obviously um, give that feedback. And obviously it's incumbent on me to make me sufficiently approachable for that feedback and to make it um, seem that if they were to give the feedback, I would genuinely implement it rather than asking for feedback for perfunctory reasons. But again, it's a two-way relationship. I need to be receptive and responsive to feedback, but similarly the students need to be willing to give it. So I'm conscious we're coming close to time and I would like to close with two questions. One of which is in the light of all the change that we're continuing to undergo right now and in the context of the book and the purpose that you have. And it's uh, the question of what vision of the world you would like to work towards. So I'd like to work to a vision of the world in which people recognise that the pie is growable so that we are in this together. And I know that sounds a bit of a cliche, but we are not competing within each other for specific resources, right? So it's not investors versus society or employees versus customers, but actually if we can create some great companies, great companies serve society more generally to realise that somebody's happiness and somebody's fortune is not at the expense of everybody else. So going back to something that we mentioned earlier in terms of social media and, and failure, right? What another consequence of social media is is that if somebody is doing really well, right, they're posting great photos of their vacation or their career success, we immediately feel really sad, right? We think that we're sort of less successful compared to them. But it's not that there's a finite amount of happiness to go around, that somebody else becoming more happy means that I'm less happy. It's that these things can be created and these things are synergistic. So what I like is is a vision of society where, in fact, we recognise that we are in this together to create social goods. And if other people are better off, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be worse off. I really like that a lot. It's very poignant. Thank you. (laughs) The second and final question is... If there is a small action or nudge that we can take as individuals or communities to contribute towards that vision, what would you suggest that nudge might be? Where might we start? So I would ask yourself, what is in my hand? So what are the resources that I have and how can I use them to serve wider society? So for me in the pandemic, it was that I I could offer these uh, Instagram fitness classes just because I had a a little bit of a a, a coaching background. And yeah, obviously there's better people like me, like Joe Wicks and so forth. But why the LBS students wanted it for me was that was a bit more more personal. But there's others who had different things in their hands. So another friend who works for one of the big professional services firm, they, he was furloughed, so he was only working four days a week. And so on the fifth day, he signed up to Spare Hand, which is a volunteer organisation which allowed him to deliver groceries to his elderly or infirm neighbours. There was another friend who um, is a partner at a law firm who realised, well, what is in his hand is he's, he's financially blessed. And so what he was able to do was things such as advance purchase, a 100 coffees from his local coffee store, and that was provided them with a massive liquidity lifeline, which might have been the difference between them surviving the pandemic and, and, and not. And what about those of us which might not have money or time? Well, we might have words. So it might be that we have just this overworked, 
delivery driver, and let's say you live on the fifth floor of a building, as I do, and they decide to deliver it all the way up to the fifth floor, some of them just leave it into reception, just to say something like, oh, I really appreciate you coming all the way up to the fifth floor to deliver it to me. Most people leave it at reception. Those small words can have a big benefit. Or to call somebody who you know is self-isolating at home, ask them how they are and genuinely mean it, I think these things, which might seem really small and, and maybe finance people like me might see them as really unimportant. One, one of the other things that the crisis has led to is the importance of mental health. And that highlights that something that everybody has, which is the ability to give kind and genuine words. Those are things which are really powerful. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash the hive podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating or review as it helps to reach new ears. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. <laughs>